You know, when I was a boy, I remember my parents had a set of the, the, the Reader's Digest condensed books. Anybody familiar with those? A few of you maybe have seen those before. Um, I actually was looking at that this week and seeing that they, they printed those from 1950 to 1997. Uh, each year they printed a series of, of them and sold them, and they were very, very popular, sold 10 million copies, but they're notoriously difficult to resell used ones, so don't try to do that. It won't do you much good, I guess. But uh, I, I remember reading through several of them when I was growing up, and they were great because you could read through a book in just a few hours. You could get all the important uh, parts without taking too much time or effort and having to slog through all sorts of lengthy uh, fluff that writers tend to put in their material. And uh, I, my only wish, though, as I remember reading those and thinking it would be really great if all of the books that I had to read for school could have been condensed books, you know, and uh, especially for history class uh, because that was really the one class in school that I didn't like uh, and uh, it would have gotten it over a lot quicker if I'd have been able to read the condensed version of all my history books. Well, that was not uh, an option, unfortunately, but it's kind of like Psalm 78 because really Psalm 78 is a condensed history of Israel written by Asaph. And we said uh, he's the writer here. Remember Asaph was one of the, in fact, he was the chief uh, of the, 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 the men who was appointed by David to serve as a choir director in the temple uh, there in Jerusalem. And so Asaph wrote this history, but it really is a condensed and abridged version. And it, this psalm really covers everything from the Exodus up until the reign of King David in just 72 verses. And actually, if you take out the introduction, it really covers all of that in a span of just 64 verses. And that's kind of like reading the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and First and Second Samuel, all in about five minutes, which is really abridged. I like that. That's kind of nice. Now, why would Asaph do this? And that's an important question. Well, that's related to what we talked about last week. When we studied in verses 1 through 8 last week, and Asaph explained there in the introduction that God had established a pattern. And that pattern was supposed to be repeated in Israel generation after generation. And the fathers were to teach their sons the wondrous works of Yahweh, so that they, the sons, would then rise up and teach their sons those same wondrous works, and then they would, their sons would rise up and teach their sons, and on and on. And so it was supposed to be a, a generation-by-generation pattern of instruction that started with God and went was passed down through the people of Israel. Now, this was not just a random thing. There actually was a goal and a purpose in mind. And verses 7 and 8 tell us what that purpose was so that their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren, and he says, those that have not yet been born, so that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That's the positive side. The negative side was this, that they would not be like their fathers who were a stubborn and rebellious generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, this, this is, in verse 8 is very important because verse 8 really is the springboard for the rest of the psalm. It's really, he's telling us in verse 8, now, now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story, and it's all this. It's all about the fathers, this stubborn and rebellious generation who did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so from verse 9 to the end of the psalm, Asaph is going to survey Israel's history beginning with the Exodus and ending with his own generation. Now there's 
differences of opinion about the interpretation of this. But this is what I believe that Asaph is doing here, is he is bringing us up to the current day in his time. And so he is bringing the history forward to that point, and he's going to explain all of this. Now, it's interesting, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that the things that were written before, he says, were written for our learning. And he says that the Old Testament Israelites are an example to us. But when we read them, um, we have to be careful. And this is one of the things, I mean, hopefully after 77 of the Psalms so far, you've figured out that I don't just read the Psalm and go, well, um, you know, this is good enough for the Israelites, it's good enough for us. And we just kind of take and pretend like we're the Israelites and it was written to us and we can just take it that way. I hope you can see that as we go through this, I recognize that these psalms were written in a specific context among a specific people. And so they, have, uh, they, they need to be interpreted accordingly. And what that means is we don't just take the examples of the Old Testament and say, well, these are moral examples for us to follow. So, you know... And sometimes we do this with, uh, with, with especially a lot of the historical books, you know, be brave like David, you know, have the courage of Daniel to go to the lion's den, be honest like Joseph and things like that. Well, the fact of the matter is the example that we see in the Old Testament by and large is this, don't do like they did. It's mostly a negative example, and that's really what Psalm 78 shows us. So it's not, look at these people, they're great examples, you can learn all sorts of things about the life of faith. Mostly it's, look at these people, and you just don't want to be anything like them. These guys really made a mess of it, don't do as they did. And it's a warning, it's but, but again, what is the purpose here? Asaph says this is what we're supposed to be teaching from generation to generation to generation to generation. They need to see this example. Now, I appreciate this psalm. We have a tendency sometimes to whitewash history. Uh, we have a tendency to whitewash the history of certain people that we like. And we especially have a tendency to whitewash our own history when we share that with someone else. I like the fact that Asaph doesn't do that. That that God doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit who inspired this didn't do that. He caused Asaph, he led Asaph to write an accurate depiction of what happened. And I think it's important for children to hear the truth. Now, it doesn't mean that necessarily we should just, you know, tell all the bad things we've ever done and list all those things and tell everybody all things. But we need to be honest. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can give the impression through only sharing a sanitized version of our past, we can give the impression that we have got everything figured out and we've always kind of managed to do it the right way. But that's not how the Bible presents people. We had the benefit on last Monday and Tuesday of hearing uh, Dr. Larry Oates from Maranatha Baptist University and Seminary. He's the pr- president of the seminary. And he was here uh, speaking to the pastors and their wives, and he spoke three messages uh, about the life of Abraham. Uh, and if you'd like to hear those messages, they're all on the church website. I posted them this week, uh, and you can go to the church website under the Pastor's Pulse uh, heading, and you can find them. They're there, and you can listen to all of them online. They're really excellent messages, and I would encourage you to listen to them. But the life of Abraham is a great example of this, because Abraham... I mean, we oftentimes think of Abraham as a tremendous man of faith, and he was, and yet, if we're honest about Abraham's life, if we read what the Bible says and we take it all in, we realize there are a lot of things about Abraham that we do not want to repeat. There are a lot of things about Abraham's life that we want to take as a warning and say, don't do this. This wasn't right. This wasn't faith. This wasn't obedience. We need to understand that the Bible presents us with the full view, an accurate view, and it doesn't whitewash things, and it doesn't kind of glaze over things that we would otherwise be uncomfortable with. And so in Psalm 78, we have this this 
condensed history, but it's a history of warning. In a way, Asaph is telling this generation of Israelites and the next generation of Israelites, hey, don't be like these people. Learn from history. Don't repeat it. Heed the warning. But there's more here, and this is what I like about this. There's more here than just a negative example for us to avoid. I mean, again, if we do that, all we're doing is we're treating this as kind of like a fairy tale with a moral. It's more than that. This psalm and the history of Israel gives us tremendous insight into the nature of God and how God works. And I want you to see that as we go through this. By the way, we're not going to finish this today either. So it'll be at least next week before we get done. But as we go into this together, I want you to see that God's compassion is inexhaustible. And it's his compassion that moves him to save his people. And I'm not just talking about from the earthly enemies. That's not in view anywhere in this psalm. God's compassion causes him to save his people from himself. You say, well, that's a weird thing to say. Why would you say that? Why would you say that, Pastor? Why would we need to be saved from God? Well, God's compassion causes him to save his people from his wrath. Wrath that burns white hot against rebellious and sinful mankind. And so, well, I might be getting ahead of myself, but we need to be saved from God, from his wrath. That's a message, by the way, that is really not popular today. Most people don't want to talk about that. A lot of churches just won't, just won't bring it up. We have to talk about it. That's what this psalm is really all about. Now, following the introduction here, and we're going to have to dive in and move because there's a lot to cover here. There's a lot of ground. Like I said, they, there's a lot of history brought in here. Asaph sets, the, the, sets out the theme of the psalm, or kind of repeats the theme, if you will, in verses 9 through 11. Notice what he says. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Now we're going to come back to these verses later because I think that verses 9 through 11 are intended to be a bookend for this historical portion of the psalm. So we're going to tie them in at the end when we get to that because I think they will give us a clue of what Asaph is really getting at here and what he's trying to say to his generation. But the basic point is clearly stated here. And it's really the same subject we mentioned last week. God's word is a sufficient foundation for real and lasting faith. But it has to be received in faith. You see, we have to believe what we hear about the truth of God. And when we believe it, that is a sufficient ground then for us to have confidence in God. And so... The word of God is a sufficient foundation, but we must believe it. And we see here, we'll see here, and, and we see even in this, he mentions the children of Ephraim and their problem here, the failure of the children of Israel to believe what God had said. That is the fundamental problem with Ephraim. He says they forgot God's works and they did not follow his commands. They knew what was right. They knew what God expected of them. They knew what God had done for them. But they did not truly believe that God was willing and able to save them. But our focus this morning isn't really going to be on the failure of Ephraim. We'll come back to those verses later. But that really is the, the theme here. That's the issue. The children of Israel failing to remember what God had done and failing to obey and keep God's commands. When we look at verses 12 through 39, we see, and this is what we're going to look at this morning, a recounting of the lives of an entire generation of Israelites. 
An entire generation of this nation is in view in these verses. This is the generation of the Exodus. These were the men and women who had watched God humiliate Pharaoh and all of his pantheon of gods that he and the Egyptians worshipped. They had seen how this great and mighty human king, because Pharaoh at the time was the most powerful ruler on earth. They watched how he was reduced to a miserable wretch after losing the life of his firstborn son and how he begged Moses and the people to leave. Of course, that wasn't the whole story. Look with me at verse 12. Marvelous things he, that's Yahweh, did in the sight of their fathers. In the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan, he divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And he made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Just think about what these verses involve. The men and women watched as the Lord himself caused an east wind to blow across the Red Sea, splitting open the waters, making them stand up on either side like cliffs. As the children of Israel, something like two or three million people, walked through on dry ground. Absolutely astounding. And when we read this in Exodus 14, which is where this happens, it's plain that the the entire generation of people watched this miracle with their own eyes. They saw it happen. This wasn't some lame special effect on TV. It wasn't some computer-generated thing. They watched it. They saw it happen right in front of them. And each morning they watched the pillar of cloud move ahead and guide them through the wilderness. And then they watched that same pillar turn to fire each night so they could continue traveling in the darkness. You see, they didn't have headlights on their camels and their wagons. But God provided light, guiding them showing them where to go as they walked through the wilderness. They found themselves in the desert. They were surrounded by dirt and rocks as far as the eye could see. Not a drop of water in sight. And they watched God, through the hand of Moses, split apart the rocks And caused a river of water to gush forth from the cliff. They saw this with their own eyes. But not only that, they tasted the water themselves. They drank. Notice here he says there were rivers of water, streams of rock, and water that came down like rivers. This was an abundance of water. So much that they drank and their thirst was satisfied. This was nothing that they had done themselves. They didn't dig a well. They didn't search out some sort of artesian spring. They just stood there at a bare rock where there was no water and they watched the Lord split apart that rock and cause a river to come rushing out. In fact, we know that God did this for his people on at least two separate occasions. Exodus 17 is recorded the first time and the second time in Numbers chapter 20. These people, their entire generation, they saw, they heard, and they tasted the goodness of God in protecting and in providing for their needs. You know, we like to say seeing is believing. And that's not really true. It's amazing. As human beings, we have this very uncanny ability. We can see something that is right in front of our eyes and we can disbelieve it. 
We can see the truth staring us in the face and we can disbelieve it. Seeing is not believing. These Israelites saw, they watched, they tasted, they heard. Every one of their senses was engaged. They knew it. And yet they refused to believe. I mean, you would think after the Israelites had such amazing spiritual experiences that they would be ready to follow God anywhere. They'd be ready to endure any trial or any test, but that's just not what happened. Asaph says, They sinned, and they rebelled against the Most High. Look at there at verse 17. He says, But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness, and they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? They tested God. That's what Asaph says. They tested God. But that's not how it's supposed to work. I like how John Goldingay puts it in his commentary on this psalm. He says, to test God is to presuppose that we do not know enough about what God can and will do. Think about that for a second. To test God is to presuppose that we don't know enough about if God is really able to do what we need him to do. He also says, for the people to be testing Yahweh reverses the proper order of relationship. You see, the way this works in the Bible is we don't test God. God tests us. We don't test God. Because that assumes that God hasn't done enough already. God had parted the Red Sea. He guided them and guarded them with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He gave them water from the rock. There was already sufficient evidence of his power. There was sufficient evidence of his wisdom. There was sufficient evidence of his goodness. For the people of Israel to trust him. And yet the people tested him. They were saying, basically, we haven't seen enough evidence to be sure we can really trust God. What rubbish. But but you have to listen to their words to get the full effect of what they were saying in their rebellion. That question there in uh, the end of verse 19, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? It's an interesting question. It's almost the same language that we find in Psalm 23 and verse 5. You're familiar with this verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You see, David, when he wrote that psalm, was expressing in faith. He was expressing gratitude to God and saying, God, even when I'm surrounded by enemies, you can prepare a table for me. You can give me a place of rest and refuge and satisfaction, you can provide every need that I have, even when I'm surrounded by enemies. And yet here the Israelites are, are asking skeptically, can God really provide a table here in the wilderness? And they continue in verse 20, and this just amazes me. They actually point back to God bringing water from the rock. Notice what they say, behold, that, that, that word, I, I, I said something to Pauletta when I was looking at this verse earlier this week. I said, that, that word amazes me. Behold. Look. Pay attention. Remember. And this is what the people of Israel are saying. Look. God struck the rock, so the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he really provide a table in the wilderness? I mean, have you ever heard somebody say something that was so unbelievable you had to ask yourself if they actually just said that? It's like when I, it's like when I, when you hear on TV or something, you hear some 
some kid from Harvard or Yale and they start complaining about privilege. And I think, really? Or some multimillionaire athlete and he starts complaining about how oppressed he is. And I think, wait a second, huh? Are you listening to yourself? This doesn't make any sense. They say, behold, God struck the rock and he caused water to come out. What should come next is, of course he can provide for us. That's the only thing that makes any sense. But that's not what comes out of their mouth. I mean, I want to ask these Israelites, did you really just mention God causing water to flow out of the rock? And now you're going to ask if he's able? What? You just want to shake your head. But, but we have to be really careful. I want to caution you and caution us together that we don't get up on our high horse just yet. Because it'll come back to haunt us if we're not careful. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? I mean, here we are in the desert. There's nothing around for miles. There's two to three million of us and we're hungry. Can God do anything about that? Just saying those words sounds absurd. I mean, just putting it into words sounds nuts. I want to go, that's dumb. Of course, that's probably why the Israelites didn't actually say these words. Look at what he said there in verse 18. He says that they tested God in their heart. You see, they were smart enough not to say this stuff because it sounds stupid. (laughs) Well, look at this incredible miracle that God did. I wonder if he can do this over here. Oh, that's stupid. So we didn't say that, but in their hearts, this was what they were thinking. And if we went back to the book of Exodus and then in the book of Numbers, because there's actually two different accounts here that that Asaph is kind of drawing on. But if we went back and looked, we would actually see that what the people actually said, the words that came out of their mouth, were complaints about Moses and Aaron. That's kind of interesting. Asaph says they were testing God in their hearts. But when we read it in Exodus and Numbers, we hear what they said with their mouth, and it was complaints. Moses and Aaron, why'd they bring us out here to the desert to die of hunger? We're going to starve to death, and it's their fault. Isn't that usually how it is, though? Because we know that it's absurd and foolish to complain about God. We know that. We know better than that. We're all... Too smart for that. We would never complain about God or question God's ability to do something. No, 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 no. So what do we do? We complain about the authorities that God has put over us. Because we can complain about them because they're imperfect. And it's easy to find things that we can complain about and say, well, it's their fault. If they just did a better job, if they weren't so flawed, then, you know, Everything will be okay. But here's the problem with that. God is not fooled when we do that. And we shouldn't be fooled either. You see, when someone complains about those who are in leadership, you should know they're actually complaining about God. What do I mean by that? Well, when the complaint is, the leader is at fault... The leader is flawed. The leader is incapable. The leaders that God has given us aren't good, aren't doing what they should do, whatever the complaints are. What we're really saying is God didn't give us better leaders. See, God's at fault. Now, we don't say that because we know better than to say God goofed up. No, 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 it's the leader's fault. I mean, that's how we typically are, but that's not. God sees right through that, and we should see through it too. Psalm 78 cuts right to the chase here. They were in rebellion, not against Moses and Aaron, even though that's how it's recorded in Exodus and Numbers. They were in rebellion against the Lord. Verse 17 tells us that they rebelled against the Most High. They tested God. 
Their challenge was directed at God's ability to provide. It wasn't Moses' job to scout out food in the wilderness. It was God's job to provide for his people. And however he chose to do that was his prerogative. Could God provide bread for three million people? No problem. Could God provide meat? No problem. Take a look. Verse 21. Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. And he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. Numbers 11 tells us that God's wrath burned around the camp when they complained. And many people died because of their unbelief, because they did not trust in the salvation of God, according to verse 22 here. You see, their words were just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus says, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Their words were simply giving us an indication of what was in their heart. Their testing challenge, these questions. Can God really provide bread? Can he also provide meat? These challenging questions were really expressing a heart of unbelief. They were really saying God can't do better than he's done. And you know what? God rose to the challenge. Now let me just say this about putting God to the test. You hear about this from time to time. People talking about testing God or putting God to the test. And I think we need to be very, very careful with our words and how we speak and how we approach that concept. Because the Israelites decided to put God to the test here and he heard them and he accepted the challenge. And let me suggest to you that that's the last thing you want to happen when you put God to the test. Didn't work out the way they expected. Challenging God to provide food in the desert. Well, I was trying to think of a good analogy for this. It's kind of like, it would kind of be like if I decided to challenge uh, one of those Olympic snowboarders. You guys have been watching them, I'm sure, you know, on TV, watch the Olympics at all. You see these snowboarders and, and, and you see them and I, you know, we were watching the, the one where they do, I think they call it big air. It's like the ski jumping, only they do it on snowboard and they do tricks in the air. It's unbelievable. And it'd be like if I went up there and I said, you know what, I'm going to challenge you, gold medalist, head to head. You versus me, mano a mano, we're going to do this. I've never been on a snowboard in my life. <laughs> I went skiing once. I've never been on a snowboard ever. Okay? Um, bad idea, right? But actually, even that's not a very good analogy for this, but that kind of gives you an idea of how foolish it would be for us to test God, to put God to the challenge. Okay. Because this is really far more foolish than that. Not only did God rise to the challenge, he completely shattered it, and he proved how ridiculous their question was in the first place. He didn't just give them bread. You see, he could have done that any way he wanted. He could have dropped down loaves of wonder bread all over the camp if he wanted. He didn't do that. He gave them bread from heaven. That was something else. You see, he didn't just meet the challenge. He blew it away. He gave them bread from heaven. Bread of angels. The word angels here isn't the typical word for angels. It's a word for heroes or mighty ones. These common, ordinary, everyday men and women were fed with the bread of the mighty ones. Bread that came down from heaven. And notice he fed them to the full, it says there in verse 25. He sent them food to the full. They didn't lack a bit. In today's kind of parlance, you could imagine at this moment God dropping the mic and walking off stage. I mean, that's how it should have ended, but the people weren't finished yet. After eating this heavenly bread for months, manna, right, the people called it, they complained again. 
This time they complained because it wasn't meat. Because we get tired of this bread all the time. And so Yahweh, we read here in the verses that we read just a moment ago, he, com- he sent another east wind, kind of like the one he used to part the Red Sea. And he sent quail into the camp. He rained down meat on them like dust. Again, it wasn't enough just to rise to the challenge and be like, oh, can I provide meat? Sure, here's a can of spam. He didn't do that. He, he covered the ground with quail. He didn't even leave it. They didn't even have to walk outside the camp. Now, uh, when, when we lived in New Mexico, I had the opportunity a couple times to go dove hunting. And around here, it's kind of controversial whether you should shoot morning doves or not. But down there, uh, it was, there was a season for it. And a couple of the other teachers that I worked with said, hey, we're going dove hunting one afternoon. They said, you want to come with us after school? We'll go out to the desert and we'll go dove hunting. I said, sure. What do I need to do? Just, just come along. we got an extra shotgun. You can just jump right in with us and, and, uh, and, we'll, and we'll go. So I went out with them. We went out to the desert. And uh, we, we went out. And it was, it, we were in the desert kind of on the backside of this huge, uh, this huge commercial dairy. Okay? So there was... You know, tens of thousands of heads of, of, of cattle in this big dairy production they had going on there. And, and, of course, what do they feed the cows? Well, they feed them corn and grain and all that's out there. Well, of course, what do the doves want to eat? So it's a perfect place to hunt because the doves are just flying in constantly, coming in, eating all the, stealing all the food from the cows. And then they'd fly them back out. And so you didn't have to even do anything. You just stand there. And they're just flying overhead and just shooting and shooting and shooting. And it was, it was the most fun I've ever had with a gun on my shoulder it was a blast the hardest part was you get so many of them on the ground you couldn't remember where they were and you had to go try and find them and you'd lose some of them in the desert and leave them for the coyotes because you couldn't find them all because you'd, you'd shoot them and it was a lot of fun hunting doves but even that I had to stand out there in the desert for a couple of hours shooting I had a shoulder shoulder when I was done you know from shooting the shotgun that long and, and had to get, gather them all up and everything the Israelites didn't even have to do that all they had to do was walk out the front door of their tent and there on the ground was like the dust or the sand of the seashore quail. Again, God didn't just provide meat. He said, oh, you want to see meat? Let me show you meat. Here we go. I'm going to cover you with meat. You're going to have so much quail, you won't be able to eat all of it. And they never realized that this wasn't actually a blessing from God. That's the thing that gets me about this. They didn't realize that they had challenged him to prove his power and he had just completely blown their challenge out of the water by showing them his power in an incredible way. They had been wrong to doubt him. They had slandered God. They had spoken foolishly and arrogantly. And Yahweh's anger had been stirred up against them. But all they knew was this. They wanted meat and there was meat. Now if they had hearts to trust God. Then when they walked out of the front door of their tent. And they saw quail all littering the ground. They would have realized we made a huge mistake. And they would have fallen on their faces. And they would have said God. We have sinned. We have been foolish. We tested you and we, we doubted your ability and you have proven so far over and above what we could ever imagine. We were so wrong to ever question you. But you can read through the record in Exodus and in Numbers. You won't find them ever saying that. No. They were so focused on themselves. They just didn't, they didn't see what was really happening. We read about it here in verses 30 and 31. He says they were not deprived of their craving. Well, you could say that again. But while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. This is a tremendously powerful example of what James talks about in James 1 when he says each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed they just wanted meat they just wanted to have a taste of meat but their desires enticed them James says, when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown brings forth death 
the choice men of Israel died. And the place that they died and were buried there in the wilderness, according to the book of Numbers, was called Graves of Craving. Now Asaph continues in verses 32 and 33, very, very briefly summarizing the failure of this generation to enter the land of Canaan and the judgment that they face. Notice what he says, in spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. Next time you think about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, think about this, that God consumed their days in futility. And he wasted their years in fear. That was what he did. But it's really the next verses here, beginning in verse 34, that bring this first generation of Israelites to a close. And they give us a commentary here on their spiritual state. He said this all the way back in verse 8. They did not set their heart aright. Their spirit was not faithful to God. They may have turned back to God at points, but their repentance was never truly heartfelt. It was never really genuine. Whatever spiritual reforms they made always fizzled out. Look at what he says there, verse 34. When he slew them and they sought him, or, I'm sorry, when he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God, their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered Him with their mouth and they lied to Him with their tongue for their heart was not steadfast with Him nor were they faithful to His covenant. The fathers of Israel were not spiritual giants. They were unfaithful. They were unbelieving. They doubted Yahweh's power and His wisdom even after seeing him part the Red Sea and provide for millions in the desert wilderness. How much like them are we? Well, I think these verses give us a very accurate depiction of the human condition. You ever wonder why people act the way they do? Why they're so quick to hate? Why they're so quick to do violence? A lot of people talking about that in our society right now. A lot of people offering up various solutions, so-called, for hatred and violence. Do you ever wonder why we're never satisfied even when all of our desires have been fulfilled? We get everything we ever wanted only to find it. It's not enough. Do you ever wonder why we struggle so mightily to change and to improve ourselves? I mean, we've had decades of education, technological advancement, and yet still we can't seem to shake these lower traits that uh, you know, many biologists assured us were leftovers of our evolutionary past, right? If you listen to what the world says anyways. We can just educate ourselves out of these things. We can grow past these things. We as a race can, can evolve beyond them. And yet here we are. Wondering about why a teenager would walk into a school and open fire and just start killing indiscriminately? Wondering why that's happened over and over and over and we continue to see it happening? No end in sight? No explanation that anyone can, can grasp in our society and our great, is a greater society? Listen, these, these verses reveal to us a fundamental truth that we have to accept. We need to come face to face with this. Man is corrupt at his very core. He is arrogant and selfish. His desires, if left unbridled, will lead him to the depths of moral perversion. But you know, as I read through and studied through this passage in anticipation of, of speaking to you today, I was struck by something. When we think about moral perversion, I don't know what comes to your mind. But as I read through these verses, the thing that came to my mind is that unbelief and doubting God's ability, doubting God's wisdom and His power is about the most perverse kind of thing that we can do. 
I mean, the mind that fashions questions like we read in verse 20. Behold, he split the rock. Can he provide bread? Really? That's about as as corrupt and perverse of thinking as is imaginable. That we could look at Almighty God and say, well, he can do this great thing, but I just don't know if he's able to do this. No amount of personal reformation, of education, of religious activity can overcome the sinful bent that we inherit from our parents at birth. When we think about this, we come face to face with the reality of human depravity. But this is where we need to see something else. Because we're also, at this point, confronted with the never-ending mercy and grace of God. Look at the, the last two verses of this section of the psalm, 38 and 39. But he, that's God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh. A breath that passes away and does not come again. You know, it's said that the very first line of verse 38, but he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. That line is, is, is the very middle sentence in all of the Psalter. We finally reach the middle. And what's the middle? What's the central point when you go through the Psalter? You come to this. But he, being merciful, pardons iniquity. Oh, what a, what a truly powerful statement. Yahweh is everything that we are not. Where we are self-centered and arrogant, he is merciful and compassionate. Where we are greedy and deserving of damnation, he is generous and he turns away his wrath. It says here that he forgave their iniquity. That word forgave is very important. It literally means to make atonement. It's the word kafar. It's a word that's used when the priest would go in to the temple and he would take the blood of that animal and he would sprinkle the blood you know that once a year on the day of atonement Yom Kippur he would go into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle the blood on the altar in the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant to make atonement to cover the sins of the people God didn't look away you see God doesn't look away from our sin. He doesn't overlook it and just ignore it. But because he's compassionate and merciful, he took it upon himself to provide a covering for it. This statement here in verse 38 is really, in in, in many ways, a prefiguring of the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul tells us that in Romans Chapter 3, that the reason that God could overlook sin in the Old Testament was that God was looking ahead to the sacrifice of Christ. The only reason that God could forgive sins because an animal was offered was that God knew the animal was a stand-in until the one Lamb of God was going to come who would take away all the sins. And so this is prefiguring the work of God Himself who gave his own son to die on the cross as an atonement for sin. And the contrast between us and God couldn't be greater. Where we forget the works of Yahweh, notice verse 39, he remembers that we are merely flesh. In other words, this verse, this verse is really emphasizing not the physicality of man, but the passing away of man. The second half of the verse 39 tells us that. 
We are like a breath, a spirit. But unlike the spirit of God, who is eternal and everlasting, we're like a spirit, like a breath of wind that just blows and is gone. That's how brief our life is. And because of that, God is merciful. Because he knows us. He remembers us. Lord knows you. Even though you're just like the Israelites, apt to forget God, apt to forget his works, apt to doubt and question his power to save, his mercy and his willingness to forgive. You know, we we have the capacity to doubt all of those things in spite of the fact that the evidence is overwhelming in front of us, that God is able and willing and desiring to save. In spite of that, he is merciful and compassionate towards sinners. That's the message. That's the message of the gospel. That you can turn to him today and be forgiven. That you can trust in the Lord and his anger will be turned aside and his mercy will be poured out to cover your sins. To atone for your unfaithfulness. That's just the first generation. Next week we're going to start in in verse 40 and we'll look at the next generation. We'll bring this account up to the time of Asaph. But what we're going to find, I think, is that man, generation by generation, is basically the same. Corrupt, unbelieving, and unfaithful. But God, generation after generation, is always the same. Merciful and compassionate and ready to forgive. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your great love, your compassion for us. So many times we see ourselves and we know that we are frail, we are dust, we are passing away, we have a brief life that will be over so quickly and there's nothing that we can do to to, to sustain ourselves And so often, even as as believers, we get discouraged by our sin and the fact that we can't seem to do what's right when we want to and we struggle and we fail and we fall down so many times. Help us to come back and cling to this one truth that you are compassionate and that where we are faithless, you are faithful. Help us to draw strength from that, to be encouraged. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to trust you. If there's someone, maybe even a child here this morning, who's never trusted you, but I pray they would realize this morning that they too are sinful and corrupt, that in their heart of hearts they do not want to do what is right. They do not want to follow you. And I pray that they would see that there is hope, that they can be delivered, that they can be cleansed and washed and forgiven. Because you're merciful. I pray that they would turn to you and cry out to you for salvation. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done, proving yourself over and over. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.